Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this episode, Wisdom Labs' Michael Taft interviews Eve Ekman. Eve Ekman, PhD, is a second-generation emotion researcher who has had meaningful collaborations with her father, renowned emotion researcher, Dr. Paul Ekman. These include cultivating emotional balance, a training utilizing the experience of emotion as a path for developing meaning, and the Atlas of Emotions, an online visual tool commissioned by the Dalai Lama to teach emotional awareness. She also co-created Cultivating Emotional Balance, an intensive evidence-based training for compassion and mindfulness, and recorded the 30-part Emotional Fluency series on our Wise at Work app. She's currently Director of Training at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and Lead Teacher of Cultivating Emotional Balance. And now, Eve Ekman, interviewed by Michael Taft. Eve, welcome to the Wise at Work podcast. Delighted to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you here. So the theme today is resilience. I'm curious, you know, as an emotions researcher, you probably work with resilience quite a bit since it's related to emotions. But I think we should start out here by getting your understanding of what resilience is and how it has anything to do with emotions. Yeah, it's a great question and one that's been really evolving over the years in terms of my own understanding. I first heard of this term resilience studying developmental psychology. And that really has to do with how kids manage to do okay, even when circumstances around them are difficult. And what they found early on is that this okayness that the kids manage to have, even when their parents are doing atrocious things or the world intervenes with war or famine or otherwise, is these kids don't just do okay, they do great. So there are certain factors that the challenge really catalyzes something even better. I like that understanding of resilience. It's not the one that most people use, but for me, it helps me understand that what we're looking for with resilience factors isn't just getting through. What we're looking for is how can these become the very ingredients to make us stronger, maybe have more innovation, creativity, work through conflict or difficulty. Yeah, so not just sort of recovering, but actually thriving. Yeah. And is this related to the concept of eustress that we hear people talking about also? Oh, interesting. So you stress, of course, being this idea that some stress is... Good for you. Well, you know, it's interesting. The definition I know of it, and I could be wrong, is that you stress simply refers to the fact that even a lot of good, enjoyable emotions can be hard on you. So at the end of your best day, when it was your birthday and there was unicorns and champagne and cupcakes, at the end of the day, you're depleted. And not depleted because it was emotionally exhausting with sadness or irritation. You were you stressed. Now, good stress or positive stress, the way I understand that is more challenge-based stress. Yes. So this kind of optimal functioning where there's just enough that's being asked of us for us to meet it with the resources we have, but not too much. Because then we can flip over into what's called threat-based stress. And that's the whole toxic stress and the allostatic load and everything that can almost be as though you were in San Francisco driving your car up the hill in the wrong gear. 
So it's possible to, of course, get overloaded with too much stress. And yet, if the stress level is more along the lines of what we can handle, it can actually be energizing or even generative and growthful. Yeah, that's how I understand it. And, you know, I do consider myself a contemplative social scientist. So bringing in some Eastern contemplative theory and practice that these very difficult things can actually become the seeds of what we are growing in terms of our ability to understand and interpret and move through the world. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think it's closely related to meaning. I'm always going to bring every conversation back to meaning. Mm. I think it's one of our least understood, definitely least researched opportunities to manage a lot of stress. If we can make meaning out of what is difficult, we can actually manage a great deal more stress. So an example I often give for folks I'm working with is I tell them, here we are in this room. And now I'm going to ask you to move these bricks to one side of the room. And you said, wait, but I just came here to listen to a podcast. That's ridiculous. But if I tell you that each of those bricks is actually a $100 donation to a hospital in Syria, all of a sudden moving the bricks is okay. And you could move them a lot longer and you would feel less annoyed, less of those secondary emotions that create that ruminative stress that we think about. You might even feel better about yourself. You would feel better. The exertion was worthwhile, even better than just listening and sitting in the room being with our voices, if that's possible. Nice. <laughs> okay, so what is it about emotions that make resilience happen? Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Resilience is not an emotion, to state the obvious. And when we think of what emotions might constitute a state of resilience, it would actually be any emotion. So how are we able to return to some homeostasis. So our emotions respond to threats and opportunities in our environments. They allow us to move towards or away from whatever we're encountering in our environment. So if we think of resilience, it means that we're encountering something in our environment that is challenging us to a maximum. It's very hard. It might be something like losing a loved one or losing our job. It could be something of physical health and real pain and discomfort. So the emotions that then would help us recover would be an ability to actually be with those emotions. I think we would see less likelihood of resilience if we tried to deny, avoid, or somehow get away from our emotional experiences. That would probably prolong the suffering. So if I think of resilience and emotions, I think most likely the factors of resilience have to do with, are we capable of being with our emotions, letting them in some ways, show us what they need to show us, and also being available for when things are okay. Some of us go through horrific experiences and events, and we're stuck in the rumination about them forever or for a long time. Like, I'm never going to date again. That was terrible. That was the worst. That is not a resilient way to overcome heartbreak. And life is full of different heartbreaks. The resilience is, that was terrible. I'm ready to love again. I am ready to try again. I am available for positive emotional states. And how is this different from what people would call grit, like just being tough? Yeah, I and other researchers I know really have a lot of skepticism around grit. It is indeed a phenomenon that has been studied and a term that is used. However, I think it gives us the wrong idea about what it means to overcome difficulty. With grit, it's almost as though the person is responsible entirely for overcoming difficulty, especially socioeconomic factors. So when I hear grit, I'm often thinking of studies that are done with children from low 
income environments or otherwise have marginalized identities that make it hard for them to achieve. But the ones who have grit, they make it. They're tough. They pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. Yeah. So it appropriated to a workplace, that might be different. People are more or less starting on the same playing field. And in that case, yeah, grit, tenacity, that's important. That's strong. That doesn't mean you learn from the experience. You just make it through. Yeah, so it reminds me of the idea that the difference between grit and resilience is resilience isn't just bouncing back, it's bouncing better, mm-hmm. right? So we have this ability to learn and grow from the experience, not just tough it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And you think about that building muscle. It's interesting, a lot of analogies for stress were initially used for testing metal. <laughs> Right. And how much pressure can you put on a piece of metal and have it still be able to maintain its form? Well, and interestingly, it's a pun, right? It could be M-E-T-T. Yes. Testing your metal. Yeah. Exactly. I never thought of that. And I think of it similarly with, I don't know a whole lot about muscle development and growth, but the little I know is you don't build muscles by just doing the same activity over and over. You build muscles by mixing it up and pushing yourself to the limit in different ways. And it generates a new kind of growth or new muscle fibers. And so would you say this is the essence of resilience is that we're not only having tenacity or the ability to sort of reboot and start again, even when something has kind of knocked us to the ground emotionally. Also that we're learning from that experience. We're learning how to do better next time. We're learning skills that are going to allow us to handle new challenges more effectively in the future? Is that part of resilience? Yeah. You know, as we're speaking, I'm thinking that in some ways, resilience is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe in it, then you're willing to look at your failures and allow them to become opportunities. Is this like a growth mindset? Yeah. It's very much a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think with a growth mindset, at least the way, again, I understand it from the research, is really about learning. (laughs) And resilience is about learning. We don't think of it per se that way, but I think its real benefit to us is an opportunity to learn from our mistakes and failures. Yeah, the growth mindset is the idea that you can learn something new rather than being pre-programmed. It's going to be like this forever. I'm just like that. (laughs) Yeah, no, instead I can learn, I can grow, I Mm -hmm. can do something new. Yeah. Okay, so what do we do to achieve this fabled state of resilience, strong resilience? How do we learn to have that and bring that quality into the workplace? Yeah, I think it would be helpful for us to think of an example So what is a case in which we might need resilience? Well, let's say we're on a team that just achieved a major goal, but achieving that goal was almost destructive in terms of, you know, how many hours people had to do and how much they had to give up to do it Mm -hmm. and how many tempers flared and fights happened. And so imagine that sort of situation. You've just been through the grinder and you did achieve something, but now... Moving forward, how much refractory time is there going to be before the team is ready to do something again? Or as a person, I'm ready to do something again. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. You know, I think of resilience so often as an individual skill or capacity. And yet, of course, this has to be available for teams. My guess, because this is almost always the case, is that the military has done great work on this. They put their teams through enormous amounts of stress and pressure, require a whole lot of psychological safety and sense of investment. 
And my guess is you can't just wait until after that project is over to have effective resilience. And it's a little bit of a cop out, but I really think it's true that having the kind of communication, you know, the simplest things matter for people in terms of sustaining and maintaining some level of positive emotion. So small amounts of gratitude and appreciation over and over you see in the literature, it goes so much farther than any kind of post hoc bonus or yes, good job. So I think of how do you, alongside the difficulty and drudgery of meeting deadlines or other projects, how do you maintain some sense of pro-social enjoyment? And that's a very scientific way of saying, how do you still like each other and what you're doing a little bit along the way? So instead of waiting until the end of that major project and, you know, everybody gets a bonus or, you know, pizza and beer or whatever, (laughs) you're saying that along the way we would be just helping each other a little more, Mm -hmm. saying nice things to each other a little more, appreciating each other a little more Mm -hmm. along the way. And that actually would have a much stronger effect. That is my strong assumption. And, you know, part of that is based on just the reality that social support is, again, one of the greatest buffers for stress. So you'll even maybe be slightly less distressed by the end of that big deadline. If you have throughout, again, you're not adding an extra thing to do. It's just kind of shifting the orientation of, oh, what matters here isn't just my own personal accomplishment. What also matters here is being part of this group. Groups are naturally enjoyable. And everyone thinks, you know, their team's the best team. And that's great. But really, every team is great. If people feel connected, if they feel safe, so that they can express this was hard, or I did well, and or you did well. And so how do you create just the container itself where communication can happen? You can do it in really simple, structured ways. You know, some of the busiest people in the world are residents who work in hospitals, and I Mm. spent a lot of time with them. And they applied a very simple positive psychology technique, which is sometimes called three good things. So at the end of the shift, they've been there for however many hours in the intensive care nursery of pediatrics, which is one of the saddest places in the world. Yes. You're going home to get very little sleep and come back and do the same. The last thing you want is more to do. And they tried this little technique as part of a study of three good things that happened today. So you're laying in bed at night after such a shift and you just think of three good things. Actually, this was at handoff. Oh, okay. So with another person. Wow. Oh, you tell another person. Yeah. So this patient's really sick. That patient's sicker. Things are really terrible. These parents are really mad at me. Three good things. This child made a drawing for me that was beautiful. This other child got off the respirator. Now, I'll be honest, they narrowed it down to one good thing. That's all they could manage. But if they can manage one good thing, we can all manage three good things. So as you're passing off, we need to have this done. Please get this done by the end of the day. Thank you. So you said, please, you said, thank you. (laughs) That's already positive and (laughs) pro-social. Pretty good. But could you say, you know, some other good thing, right? Is there just like a simple ingredient there that has to do with gratitude? And I bring up gratitude because my employer, Greater Good Science Center, has invested a ton of research into the benefits of gratitude. And I'll be honest, I was slightly skeptical. How could gratitude actually make such a big impact? But over and over, this very simple way of being specific about what someone has done that you appreciate or just appreciating in general the experience you've shared with someone makes people feel so much better. You're less skeptical. You have more gratitude for the gratitude research. Yeah, it's kind of contagious like that. Wow. So this can't be, or it's not as effective if you're just kind of saying, wow, you're great. But if it's more like, 
the way you did this one paper for work was amazing. I loved your vocabulary or something. Sure. It's those specifics that make it real. Right? Yeah. And letting them know when you covered me when I was sick, it allowed me to sleep more that day. Yeah. So you did this thing. It impacted me. Mm. We're getting a little away from three good things, but I think the gratitude practices in some ways, they're really easy and really simple if you can be specific. Amazing. So what other practices besides gratitude would you imagine like helping to build resilience in a very effective manner? You know, it's interesting as I'm thinking now of, well, what gets in the way of resilience? Mm. So we are naturally resilient beings, incredibly adaptive. We are the product of thousands of years of successful evolution. So what gets in the way? And I think often we hear the same thing over and over, conflict with our coworkers, feeling unappreciated, feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. And so what are the specific factors that can help us? And again, I'm going to turn back to social support and connecting with other people. Yeah, having time off, vacations, eating well, sleeping well. Everybody already knows that. (laughs) You're already doing the best you can at most of it. Most of us. If you want a reminder, here's a reminder. That stuff matters. It matters at a cellular level. It'll increase your health span. You will age in a less terrible way. Eat well, exercise well, sleep well. Okay, moving on. (laughs) I still think that you can employ these like little activities that are enjoyable with others, especially when you don't like them. So here's the thing with coworkers, sometimes there's outright conflict, but often there's just a lot of resentment and judgment. Yeah. Animus. Animus. Yeah. And I think one of the practices that can be really helpful is there's a little one that we use at the Greater Good Science Center that we've taken from the research and shared on our site that's called shared identity. And so at the very basic level, you think of what are the things I actually share with this person? Well, 99.9% of my DNA. They probably also have kids or they probably also walk outside in the morning. You try to find the very simple grains of what makes you like this person. And what we know from the research is we like people who are like us. Yes, this is the just like me practice. Right. Yeah. So the idea is when we don't like someone, we always look at how they're different. Mm -hmm. But when we like someone, it's about the ways that they're like us. So you can hack this feature on purpose. You can hack it with intention and just try to figure out ways someone is like you. And it turns out most people are way more like you than they're not like you. Yeah. They breathe air. They breathe air. They (laughs) probably use the toilet, all these things, but you don't have to like them per se. I think Mm -hmm. people often get in trouble when they try to force themselves to like others when it's too soon. You can at least reduce your not liking of them, (laughs) your resentment, your judgment of them, because that will truly get in the way of your ability to ask for help when you need it, right? Or get done what is needed to be done in a team. So I think it's looking at the factors that get in the way of resilience. And resilience, though, it is, of course, something we do on our own. When we're resilient, my guess is we probably are also more available like a Fredrickson model to broaden and build to look around and see what our resources are. So Barbara Fredrickson has looked over and over that when we feel enjoyable emotions, we are actually more available to opportunities around us. When we feel stressed and annoyed, frustrated, resentful, we're just kind of focused inward. So back to the work situation, we're trying to basically build a better relationship with our team members on purpose Mm -hmm. by doing this practice of sort of seeing how they're like us yeah, or imagining or considering how they're more like us. Yeah, I think that's one good strategy. Again, if we think of other things that might get in the way of our resilience, time to regenerate. We really do. We need to regenerate. 
we can't always be doing. And it's not always our work's fault. So most of us will say, well, yeah, maybe if I worked less, I could regenerate. But that also includes what are you doing when you leave work? What are the kind of activities? Another aspect of positive psychology that we focused on a lot in our center is awe, A-W-E. Not awe looking at puppies, which is also <laughs> great, but the kind of awe you get when you receive the beauty of the world. Yeah, so how would you define awe? I mean, it kind of means fear originally, <laughs> correct? You know, it is interesting is that there is a co-occurrence sometimes of mild terror. Yeah. And yet it's not a terror, like a threatening terror. It's a, oh my God, things are so much bigger than I recognized. Yes. I remember someone who told me one time that awe was surprise that rearranged your understanding of the world. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Surprise is such a brief emotion where I feel like awe, it almost like unfolds and ripples. Yeah. You're like, oh my God. And as it sinks in and we make ourselves available for awe when we're not at the office, by not checking our social media and our email f all the time. I feel awe every time I <laughs> touch Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yesterday, for example, I, I had a meeting and I got there early and assumed someone would let me in and they didn't let me in. And there happened to be no coffee shop within a two block radius. And I was forced to sit outside for 20 minutes. And literally, it was awesome. I mean, it was a beautiful day. That helped. But just letting myself receive what was going on, people walking by, the leaves through the trees, it really did replenish and refresh me in a different way. Amazing. So anything else about resilience that you feel we need to complete? You know, I will say this comes up a lot, especially among healthcare professionals, but even in some of the other industries where I work of this idea of resilience being me telling you as a worker that you need to do more. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. This is back to grit. Like, you can have another overtime shift, of course. And, you know, I think resilience should be something that maybe needless to say is supported throughout the entire culture of the organization. So it isn't just up to me as one more thing I need to do in order to fulfill my role, but something that is really valued. And that might mean that there is a sense of, wow, we should train people in this, or we should highlight people who are on their own doing activities that promote their resilience, or we should share strategies. My only worry, I think resilience is wonderful, is when it gets used in a way that makes people feel like they're being told burnout is their fault. So we think of the opposite of resilience, right? Burnout. Yeah. Eve, thank you so much for coming on the Wise at Work podcast. Anytime. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.